Welcome to Bite Size, a series where we talk to traffic and mobility experts, discuss innovation, and highlight business leaders within transport and city planning. Hello, my name is Emily Bubbles, and welcome back to another episode of the Bite Size podcast. Today's topic is quite relevant because this month on the 16th to the 23rd of May is National Road Safety Week. So the topic for today is about the role of driver training programs and how they can help us improve road safety and prevent fatalities or serious injuries. In Australia, we're really lucky to have been exposed to a lot of technology that has decreased the number of deaths that we experience per 100,000 populations every year. We've got RBTs, introduction to mandatory seatbelts, speed cameras, the list continues, right? But every year, there's still over a 1,000 people that die across Australia from uh, road accidents. In New South Wales alone, you've got about 30 or 40 people every single day who are hospitalised as the result of a car accident. This whole topic of driver safety is why the guest today is very, very interesting. My guest today is Jean Corbett. Jean is the Managing Director of Total Driver Australia, which was formed in 2004. Jean has over 15 years in the driver training industry, including a really cool experience where he was part of the performance driving instructors for the Mercedes-Benz F1 program in 2003. He's an incredibly passionate and committed advocate for more effective and efficient driver training programs. Uh, which is why he started Total Driver in the first place, in order to create safer drivers, safer roads and safer communities. Jane, thank you so much for chatting with me today. No problems. Great to meet you. My favourite question to ask everybody is how they got involved in transport or in their particular role, because I find people have really interesting, sometimes unexpected backstories or origin stories, if you will. How did you get involved in driver safety and eventually start Total Driver? Well, it was hilarious. I grew up literally in the middle of New South Wales and at 15, when you're supposed to have a crystal ball to know what you want to do for the rest of your life, <laughs> I had three choices. One was to meet a hot blonde and marry her and have lots of kids and take over the family farm. And the other one was to become an agronomist because I figured what could be cooler than being paid to drive somebody else's ute through someone else's paddocks. <laughs> and the uh, the third one was I was going to travel the world, teach people how to race cars and change the way we educate drivers. So everybody figured I needed a dose of reality and I was uh, sent off to the army when I was 16 and, and bugging me dead through quite a few sliding doors type moments. I wound up working for BMW teaching performance and race driver training and that's where it all started from. It was interesting when we first had our call uh, and you were talking about that and how people were kind of like, what are you doing? Why Why do you want to have all these unrealistic goals? And then uh, you kind of turn them into re- reality in, in some sense unexpectedly. <laughs> there was no plan to it. There was absolutely no plan. It all kind of took shape. I moved up to Queensland to um, to be with a woman and that's how I started my first engineering business and I used to set my goal self a goal to leave work a minute later every day and there was this bridge just through a bend on the way to work and I used to see how fast I could throw this old 64 Holden <laughs> across that bridge and then uh, one day after a rather spectacular slide this guy came down and marched into my workshop and revved the ring dinger out of me and told me if I was half as good as I thought I was I'd prove it at a racetrack and once he realised I genuinely didn't know there were racetracks in Queensland, he took me up to his workshop and showed me his race car and got talking and 
invited me up to Lakeside Raceway and that's where all the doors started Amazing. opening from. Yeah, I literally did not know that you could even do it for a living. Yeah, so when the doors started opening, I kind of lived every day as though it was the last because I didn't know you could do it. So let's just go for it. So in our conversation as well, you, you mentioned, so you grew up in rural Australia. Um, you didn't see your first set of traffic lights until you were 12, which is a little bit mind boggling to me. How has your personal experience impacted how you perceive driving a car now that you've, you've gone from that and kind of ripping it around bends to trying to teach people maybe how not to do that? <laughs> it's really interesting for something that was my passion the whole way growing up through life. When I started with a guy called Frank Gardner, who was the foremost authority in probably the world, he was the first person to win three world championships in three different categories in the one year, which was unheard of. Um, and he's, they're building the cars themselves back in those days. He hmm. left Sir Jack Brabham's Formula One team to go and work with Ford on the GT40 program. So if you've seen the, the movie Ford versus Ferrari, he was a key person in that. So we'd heard lots of stories about that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He works in a research project between Ford NASA and the US Navy. So the Navy had a problem with the aircraft, with their pilots missing aircraft carriers at sea when they come into land. The NASA was trying to understand everything about how do they get astronauts into space and most importantly, how do they get them back home again? And Ford was developing the Mustang and killing engineers at a frightening rate because they put this V8 into a small car with crap tires and it didn't do anything spectacularly well. So he got drafted into that research program. So the thing that I learned that absolutely stood out more than anything else is that everything that we want to do, everything that we think makes us a good driver is actually the exact opposite to what's required. So it's almost like it's actually called embodied cognitive skill. It wasn't until I was doing some work with Professor Ian Glendon at Griffith University and he was dissecting the program that, that I developed. He looked at me across in the middle of the meeting and he says, you've got no idea what you've done, have you? And I went, nope. <laughs> I was just trying to fix a marketing problem. And he goes, well, it's called embodied cognitive skill. It's our brain's natural process for managing threats and hazard information. So everything we do that's designed for our biological environment to create us, to keep us safe is at odds with the environment we create as a driver because we introduce speed and our brain can't process speed. Mm-hmm. That's why every driver's decision-making process and their driving behavior is so compromised. So what I worked out how to do was how to reprogram a link that made it work using the negative to the advantage. So essentially we stall speed, which means we buy time. And the moment you can teach them how to buy time, you can then teach them how to see. And then you mm-hmm. can teach them how to create a plan or a strategy and suddenly they're aware. Yeah, interesting. I think as well uh, from what I've been either taught or read with driver safety as well. I don't think people realize when you're going at any any real speed in a vehicle, your brain does a lot of filling in. So when you're actually saying you have to learn how to see, people are probably like, what does that mean? The boy look is actually biological. It, it, it's fascinating. Every time we run a program and we talk to people about this, the, the women just burst out laughing. And and essentially, you can send, they've proven this in research. You can send a man to a fridge and he'll open the door and you'll tell him what he wants to find. <laughs> and I know this. So you think I would be a little bit more aware and I live on my own. So I've got no one to blame. 
I will tell myself everything on every shelf. I will move things. I know it's in there because I used it the night before. <laughs> and eventually I'll give up. I'll close the door, open it, and it's right in front of my eyes. <laughs> so they proved in terms of how men process information that if it's not what we want to see, where we want to see it, expecting, surrounded by what we expect to see it, surrounded by even down to the colouring, the packaging, and the wording being what we think it should be, we physically can't see it. Mm. Now, if we've got this much of a challenge in a non-threatening, inanimate environment of just trying to get some food out of the fridge, how much of a challenge do you think we have when we accelerate the environment but we're still using that same basic process? Really, really interesting as well, particularly I think putting it in a, a less dangerous context when you're trying to get yourself a snack out of the fridge is <laughs> something. Exactly. Yeah, it makes it. And every woman can relate to the boy, look, you girls just shake your head at us and go, open your eyes, have a look. And we're generally trying to find it. You know, we do not want to ask for help. It goes against everything about our male ego that there is. But yeah, sometimes you have to raise a flag. Yeah, there's and there's then, truth to the um, to the mother look where people are like, I'll get your mother to have a look and then she finds it right in front of your face. They relate all of this back to the hunter-gatherer syndrome. So women's brains connect differently. The left and right hemispheres connect differently to males' brains. And I learned this when I was working with Mercedes-Benz. Um, they projected a holographic sphere up into the middle of the room and when the men looked at it, it would do two to three revolutions clockwise and two to three anti-clockwise. When the women would look at it, it would do half to three quarters of a revolution clockwise and then anti-clockwise. And what that was was a brain switching from left to right hemispheres. So that's why women are very strong with multitasking, multiple conversations at the same time mm. and doing all those things that women are, are naturally gifted at doing. And that's why men have no idea how they even do it um, because our brains can't process that level of information. But in the split, they found in kids as young as five that the boys were already four times stronger in their spatial skills than what the females were, which was why boys were naturally drawn to ball-related sports. It was all speed, time, distance, and motions equations. It's why males are perceived to be risk-takers behind the wheel because the mathematical equations going on is food and stimulus for our brain. So there's all these different factors going in that everybody conveniently ignores when they put it under the umbrella of driving safe. On that, so what role does driver training have in proactively reducing the road toll? I know uh, the stat that's most thrown around is the number of crashes, say, that happen when you're a learner versus when you first transition onto your P-plates. It's a horrendous graph. Mm -hmm. It shows a 3,000% increase in crashes. They're five to seven times more likely to crash than the average, what we call the average of a driver out there. It takes three to five years for their crash rate to return down to a mean and everybody would like to tell you that's because that their frontal lobe or their cortex hasn't developed and this hasn't happened and we should wait till they're 25. I mean, what the graph is actually showing you is that the approach and the emphasis in how we're teaching people how to drive is so misplaced that they are completely unprepared for their role as a driver. That's what it's really showing. Now, if you looked at any other form of education, even if you look at sports, you could have a group of people that loved kicking a football around and did it every day, every day of their life for years and suddenly decided they were going to go and play the Broncos and marched out on the field. They would – actually, maybe the Broncos wasn't a good idea to compare. But, um, <laughs> but, but you get the idea. If they want to be the best footballer they can be, they go and join up into a league and they work their way through to find the best coaches that they can find and they get trained as the best team. There's – 
a process, there's a format, and it doesn't matter whether it's football, whether it's golf, whether it's tennis, it doesn't matter if it's mathematics or if it's music. It's the same process. You always go and find the best based on what they achieved in their life, and then you learn the proven skills that they were taught. But with driving, we throw the baby out with the bathwater where we actively tell them we can, they can teach themselves how to drive. Mm. Now, if, if that worked, we wouldn't have a problem because we all taught ourselves how to drive. But where it gets compounded and people don't stop to think about this is the cars that we learned to drive in were such horrible agricultural pieces of crap that they wanted to jump off the road at the side of anything. So they actually scared us into slowing down. In fact, it was the design brief in the 60s and the 70s for Holden. That was their road safety brief, was make the cars handle so badly it would scare people into driving slow. <laughs> That's why they came out with radial tune suspension. It had nothing to do with these new fandangle tyres and everything to do with there was a new change at top-level management who said that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, we better fix this, but how do we admit that we've now been poorly engineering our cars? Let's blame the tyres. <laughs> and that was where radial tune suspension came from. So we haven't changed how we teach our kids how to drive. We haven't changed the process that we lead them through in any way, shape or form. We've actually compounded it and made it worse because we came up with this ideal that if you spent 100 hours practising really bad skills, that you'll somehow be better. Wrapped it all up that if you pass a driving test, you can now drive and then throw the book at them for when the inevitable happens because we never actually taught them what driving was all about in the first place. And then we put them into brand new cars that isolate them from all the information that made us slow down. Um, your story is kind of giving me flashbacks to when uh, my dad first was teaching me how to drive. And I remember the first, it terrified me because he took me out in the, in the car. And at that time, it was this 1989 Toyota Camry. And he basically just parked it on the side of a road uh, with no lines or anything. It was like, okay, drive. And 16-year-old me was like, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> We actually start learning to drive from the age of three, believe it or not. So we're subconsciously absorbing the braking, the cornering, the G-forces, the driver mannerisms. But what changes when you put them behind the wheel is they are not prepared for the onslaught of information and the constant assessment and reassessment and decisions that need to make. Mm. So when you've got this process that makes the parent become the supervisor, and, and bear in mind, if you did this in any form of industry anywhere in the world. If you just grab somebody out of the crowd and said, you can be a supervisor because you've got a license and you might as well teach this person because you know each other fairly well, the whole business would be shut down. Our teens, the highest risk activity that they will ever undertake, and that's not being melodramatic, the statistics show it. See, it takes more lives than suicide and depression. It, that's why Young Care was set up. Young Care was set up because over, what was it, 75% of the people in young care were under 25 and there through road trauma. Wow. So Bernard Fanning, it was one of his friends that was affected by a bad car crash, and the only place he had to live was in nursing homes, and in nursing homes he got a three-year mortality rate. In other words, they're going there to die. Mm. That's the average life expectancy. So for somebody in their early 20s to spend the rest of your life surrounded by death is a pretty sad picture. And that's why they got together and they started Young Care. We don't look at any of those things. And the problem is, is because we don't understand what driver training is, there's no value proposition for it, which means everybody's reluctant to pay. And the stats show that we're failing horribly, but 
It's our teens. It's the next generation of people that are suffering the consequence if they manage to survive based on how they're going to survive. In our conversation as well, you talked about something called the default. So what is the default and how does it influence the way that we drive? It was Professor Barry Watson from Cars Q that first told me that when we were trying to get some recognition in terms of what was the pathway forward to commercialize the project once we've gone through our proof of concept and that sort of thing. And he was going through all the data and everything I put together and he goes, my God, you fixed the default. How did you work out how to do that? No one's worked this out and he's rambling. And I stopped him and said, what's this default? And he looked at me and the look on his face meant that he told me too much. And then it came out that the default is what they call the current legislative perspective. Mm. It means what happens if they don't do anything. So by having a completely unstructured, unregulated industry where everyone's allowed to do whatever they want to do, where the benchmark is only that you've practiced really badly for 100 hours and 12 months in period of time, they know the crash rate. That means they know how to budget. That means they know how to allocate for hospitals, emergency services, X, Y, Z. That's the cost of that process. The problem when you're trying to pioneer and change the process is without realising it, you're trying to change governance, you're trying to change the perception of research, you're trying to change an entire industry, that's quite happy doing what they do because no one's telling them what to do and how to do it and no one's benchmarking whether they're good at doing it or not. And I guess the best benchmark of that is we've got world champions in our country from motorcycling with Mick Doohan and Wayne Gardner and Daryl Beattie to Formula One with Mark Webber and Alan Jones. You've got the Brabham family. Uh, then you can look at the US motorsport. We are right at the top of the tree, but not one. Not one anywhere in our industry or in our country or even anywhere else in the world do you find the Mark Webber School of Driving. Mm. Now, here's people that their entire life was about being the best. They're surrounded by research and practices that you couldn't even comprehend. And we're not even passing it down to our most vulnerable and we're not even seeing the need to do it and even worse than that, we're not identifying the value of that. But the cost of not doing any of those things cost our economy $36 billion a year. It's. I know there's been somewhat of a push now as well because with the logbooks and things like that, I, I mean, I've had friends who have just like, oh, I just, you know, fudged the hours, which is probably even worse. This comes back to what I was saying before. It doesn't happen if you're an academic mm. and you're studying for your maths exams. It doesn't happen if you're artistic and you want to learn dancing or how to play an instrument, it certainly doesn't happen on the sporting field, but we do it with driving. And it's really interesting if you look at top-level athletes and how they're trained. A lot of their training is very, very structured. And everybody is very, very quick to say that the skills and the techniques and the knowledge learned in racing have nothing to do with the road in which we drive. But what everybody fails to understand is the road in which we drive is actually far more complex than the racing environment because the racing environment, everybody goes out with the same mission statement to go as fast as possible in the one direction, surrounded by people that are there to help them with that goal. The whole track is circumnavigated with marshals and the people there for their safety. Mm. And there is rules on rules on rules to keep it safe. But on the road, the threat's coming from four directions at once with no one even paying attention. Mm. Yeah. So you indirectly mentioned them with the football analogy about the idea of behavioural triggers. How can people recognise these behavioural triggers that could potentially impact their driving so that we can prevent uh, maybe someone being reactive 
in the way that they may approach, say, a potential crash or a dangerous situation. Okay, it's quite interesting because we say that driving is a learned skill. So until you've actually learned or been taught, you're still operating on the default, which is called reactive driving. And the best way to describe that is that if you picture walking down the footpath and the concrete suddenly broken, the first thing you do is you look at the threat, which is a broken concrete. And then the next thing you do is you look for a way around that threat until you beside or pass the threat and then feel safe. And then you look forward again, the average person looks three to five meters ahead. But what you really did was you sacrificed your big picture peripheral vision and your long distance tunnel vision and reverted back to your close range of vision. And then you use that to navigate the risk or the threat. And then when your threat was over, you picked your eyes up again. That's our natural process for managing threats and hazard information. It's called embodied cognitive skill. Mm. Now what happens when you put them behind the wheel of a vehicle is that they do exactly the same thing. They see the painted marking on the road, they look at it. They see the back of the car in front of them, they look at it. So they collapse two of their three fields. They collapse their peripheral vision and they collapse their tunnel vision and they revert back to their close vision, which means they're now reacting to everything as it's gone wrong. And whatever they can keep pace with that, they don't, they somehow manage to not crash. The moment something is introduced that they weren't expecting, that's the crash because there's no reactive time built into their driving to allow for them to adjust the car. So today I had to go and do an assessment for a person. It's really unfortunate. We do a lot of specialist assessments for Mm -hmm. um, people where, you know, onset illnesses are starting to step in and so forth. It it really does make you appreciate the value of life when you see how young it's happening in some people. Anyway, this process was so bad in this particular gentleman. He had cerebral palsy. There was a special name, CSP or PPS or something like that. Mm-hmm. He essentially had cerebral palsy that was affecting his eyes, his vision, and his perception. So he would literally drive to the line in the middle of an intersection and then stop mm. and then evaluate and then make a decision on how he was going to turn. So when that is basically the trigger for your driving behavior because they can't see information, So they make decisions based on what they see, but what they see is a very compromised window of information, which means the decisions are compromised. Mm -hmm. The driver doesn't realize that they're at such high risk. So you can see when you start to understand how this works, why the way that we're teaching our drivers is actually making a fundamentally flawed process worse every year. Yet the benchmark of engineering in our roads, the engineering in our vehicles, the engineering in our environment, the rules and compliance has also been increasing, which means it should be safer. But it's not getting safer because the one thing we haven't changed is how we educate the drivers. So when it comes down to how do you give the average person tools, it's like any form of learning. They need to go and learn. They need to sign up to someone that actually knows what they're talking about, understands how to systemize and structure the process, and realize it could take three to four months of constant practice before the change becomes natural. Definitely. I Yeah, I think it's there's a lot more aspects involved in driving or learning how to drive that I think people, particularly if you've been driving for so long, just because you know how to drive doesn't mean that you know how to teach how to drive. When I first went to try out for BMW, I literally had the mindset that I, as a country kid, I was going to show these city slickers how it was done. <laughs> I literally thought I was that there was nothing I couldn't make a vehicle do. And by the end of the second day, I could not even function to have a conversation. 
the level of information that I'd been provided, the absorption rate was such that I was fried. And I was literally told at the end of that second day to go away for three months and practice. Mm. And only if I thought I was good enough was I, was I to give them a call and come back again. And so what I learned was everything I thought I was doing that was fundamentally right. I mean, I could make a car dance. I used to sneak off with the family car when I was 10 to see how <laughs> I could hold power slides and the loosen paddles. Everything that I thought made me good, I was literally I was literally too dumb to realize how bad it was. And I was only fast on a racetrack fast because I didn't sense the fear. So what I learned out of that was the awareness that goes into driving the decision-making process. It even comes down to how your feet are positioned in the footwell and how your hands interact with the steering wheel and how you connect the hands and the eyes together. And it becomes the most graceful series of actions you've ever seen. It literally is an art in driving. But it's not about teaching people. And this is where historically it's gone so pear-shaped and left the field is they all believe that driver training was teaching people how to recover loss of control, understeer, oversteer, brake lockups, and those sort of things. But you can't teach someone how to control what they actually lost control of because if they didn't realize the mistakes they made that got it that far into trouble, they've got no hope of understanding how to pull themselves back out of that situation that they created. I remember 20 years ago watching a young council worker trying to do drifts on a right-on lawnmower while he was mowing the football field. <sighs> But that's human behavior. Mm. It goes to show it had nothing to do with how much horsepower you restricted him by. It had nothing to do with how slow you made him go. That human desire to push the boundaries, to experiment, to learn, to have fun, I mean, that was what created motor cars. Mm. You can't chastise these people and, and punish them for what was the motivation that created the entire automotive industry that gave us the life we have. So what happens is because they think that's the benchmark of good driving, the moment they believe that they're in a situation that's safe to do it, and trust me, they're all more responsible than what I ever was at that age group and what anyone I ever knew was in my age group at that point in time. But because they've never been taught, it takes very, very little to turn it very nasty very quickly. So you have to build it into how you're preparing them as a driver right from the first time they're going to be walking towards the car. That's when you start to program the mindset. That creates a behavior change. That creates the benchmarks of what good driving is and the rewards that they're looking for, and that's why they stop crashing cars. Mm. Yeah, really. it's really interesting to kind of learn and talk more about the, the biology as well behind it. So based on the statistics and what you've talked about in terms of policy if you had the power to make one change in the way that we address road safety in Australia, what, what would you want to put in place? You would structure the pre-licensed learning to drive industry. You would put systems, processes and structures in place and align it with a learning curriculum that was based on science and engineering, not based on somebody's opinion. The next thing you would do is you would support that with school education programs because the time practical in the field is quite limited due to cost but you can support the learning process in school in a peer group environment to get them thinking about what good driving is and how to look out for each other. The problem with the entire industry, it's all run on fear, it's all run on blame, and it's all run by people who have lost their own kids through making bad decisions on teaching them how to drive and then blame the kids for it. So the benchmark for a good program for this group is that people walk out crying, getting sick, but all that does is create the fear 
And the problem when you create fear is fear is actually driven by adrenaline. Adrenaline is a fail-safe mechanism in all of us. The adrenaline takes our peripheral vision and our tunnel vision and collapses it into close-range vision, and it becomes reactive. It's fight or flight. You can not actually pick how the person's going to make a decision when they slip into that mode. That's the mindset that we're putting them onto the road with because no one actually stopped to ask what we're really trying to do in terms of teaching them how to drive. So if you were to change anything, you would change that. And by changing that part of the process, you would involve the parents and you would educate the parents at the same time. And thereby, you're getting two bites at the one cherry. You're actually educating two generations and changing behavior in a proactive, adventurous way of you know, making driving fun. Really interesting stuff. Um but Jean, thank you so much for chatting with me today about driver safety and, and the ins and outs, the t- statistics, and also some of the neuroscience behind it as well. It's a fascinating subject. It really, really mm. is. Uh, when, when you understand how it works, it completely changes how you communicate as a trainer, how you interact. It takes me months to train instructors because there's so many different elements that you go through. So the industry standard for a driving instructor is a four-day course in running a small business. And with our business, it takes us six months of hands-on learning and training and in-the-field experience and debriefs. And it, it's a big job when you actually understand what it is that you try to do. If you'd like to know more about Gene or Total Driver, you can visit their website, which is www.totaldriver.com.au. Or alternatively, if you would like to know more about Compass AOT, the company that produces the Bite Size podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.compassiot.com.au. Until next time.